Lord Jesus, please be with us tonight. Please be at work. Please be at work in me. Give me the right words and the right mannerisms. Lord, please be at work in us. Give us receptive hearts. Let be your spirit that teaches us tonight. Amen. Um, so we're taking one of these breaks from our sermon series and we're doing one of our sporadic equip evenings. Um, tonight our focus is science and Christianity and so looking, looking for the apparent conflicts and the interplay between the two and how we can respond to that as believers and then how it might impact on how we talk to other people. I don't know how you struggle with this or whether you're totally happy with these sets of ideas or what. So at the end hopefully we should have some time for some singing and prayer and response and then hopefully some discussion and if necessary some question and answer. I, I have to start though with a disclaimer. Um, this being Oxford there's going to be an unusually broad range of experience amongst us. There will be people who are very, very highly educated in the sciences, others who fear the mention of the Bunsen burner. Um, I'm going to pitch things low unless I ask tough questions so please be patient. Um, second disclaimer, I'm aware that there'll be a broad range of stances um, in our church. Um, we need to be sensitive to that. So I'm, I'm not going to try to put forward an orthodox position on evolution, for example. And I think one of the big challenges that, that we have to recognise in this kind of topic is that the Bible does not speak to these topics directly very much. So while they, they might be important questions for someone trying to decide whether to explore Christianity or not, I think that they're not core to the Gospel. And, and so that it's alright, and often probably wise, for us to confess ignorance, rather than firm up position. Um, as we get going, then let, let me give my credentials, if you, if you don't know me. Uh, I think most of you do. Um, I came to Oxford to study physics back in 1998, which is very scary now. Uh, and then I, I, I sort of ambled into teaching, almost by accident. And, and since then I've been teaching physics to secondary age students, mostly A-level now. Um, and one of the joys and challenges of teaching teenagers is that, apologies to you guys, but often they, they have fewer of the adult restraints of politeness in place. So sometimes I've I've just been met with outright incredulity. Charlie, because it's that kind of hippie school, <laughs> how can you be a Christian if you're a physics teacher? That just doesn't work. And, and it seems there's often this flat assumption that good science and orthodox Christianity are mutually exclusive. Um, as an aside... And you know, that, to minimise the importance of it this evening, I, I actually get the feeling that that's becoming less of an issue for many of my students. Um, I don't know if this chimes with your experience, but ten years ago, I think a lot of my students had this perception that there was this genuine fight, that there was an ongoing battle between science and Christianity. And, and so it was a really, really important area for apologetics. Now, I think for most of my students, the, the general perception is that the argument's settled. Science is objective truth, and honestly, you can believe what you like around the edges, that's up to you. For them, I think it's become a secondary issue. Um, the primary objections for them, are, I think at the moment, aren't to do with evolution and creationism, but, but rather the perceived intolerance of Christians. 
for example, towards homosexuality or other worldviews. Maybe that doesn't chime with what you see. That's the impression I'm beginning to get. But still, the surprise does remain. How can a physics teacher be a Christian? And, And how do we approach this stuff as believers? What I want to do tonight is first put out what I think are some of the key obstacles to putting science and Christianity around the same table, from the world's point of view and from Christian points of view. And then I want to say how I think we can deal with those issues. And then I'll try and talk very briefly and very, very superficially about what I think are some of the stickier areas of science for us. And then finally we can try and think about how that plays out as we interact with people around us. Um, So... First, what are the core objections of putting science and Christianity on the same page? Uh, I think there are damaging objections from both sides. From the general population's perspective, I would say that the first objection is this. Science is really impressive. It, it lets us magically project words onto the screen. It, it lets me communicate halfway around the world effortlessly. Uh, we can go to space. We can grow enough food to allow larger populations than ever before. We can make remarkable medicines. Science works. And it it does all of that without any reference to God. Science doesn't need him. He doesn't turn up in any of my equations. He's not there in my methods and my techniques. He he doesn't turn up my explanations of why the fundamental particles interact in the way that they do, or or the way that organisms breed and develop, or the way that chemical reactions go. The the modern scientific world tends to be quite reductionist. If, If I can describe what's going on in terms of the basic building blocks, then I've got enough. And and honestly, we understand the universe pretty well without any reference to supernatural. Science doesn't need God. Um, Famously, Pierre-Simon Laplace, a great mathematician of the 18th and 19th centuries, supposedly he was once asked why his magnum opus had no reference to the author of creation. He talked about incredible advanced mathematics. He explored the system of the world, but no reference to God. And his response was just, I have no need of that hypothesis. Science doesn't need God to function. And and that is true. Science isn't a religion. It's not a group of people. It's not even a set of facts. It's just been... It's a process. Which has been described as enlightened ignorance. I like that. Science is really about spotting things that we don't know, asking questions, suggesting explanations, and finding out ways to test them. It's a thought process. And I can engage in that, whatever my religious convictions. It doesn't need God. Now, now the risky conclusion, which people leap to from there, is then the idea of God is irrelevant. More hostile objection, which goes further, is that science has disproved Christianity, or it's disproved the Bible. Um, We sometimes like to tell ourselves that this is a very modern idea, but similar objections have been made for centuries. Science has disproved Christianity, so we just need to drop it and move on. And so there's this general perception amongst certainly my students and many people I meet that 
that science and Christians disagree over big issues. The Big Bang, evolution, the existence of miracles. And frankly, science demonstrates you cannot walk on water. You cannot heal at a touch. The universe is old. God isn't only unnecessary for science. The accusation is that it actually doesn't fit. And and if I'm not a believer, that is great news. Because if I already know that the Bible will not stand up to scientific scrutiny, then I, I just don't need to engage with it. It's got no authority, no claim on my life, and no right to challenge my priorities. I I get to discard Jesus and all those outdated claims of Christianity, and I can relegate them to that more naive time. Olden days when people believed dumb stuff. I'm, I'm sure there are other strands of very big objections to Christianity from a scientific perspective, but I think those are the two that I encounter most. But it's important to say there are strong objections back to science from a Christian perspective sometimes. I I don't know how you feel about science. Maybe you're you're one of the people who's terrified by it, maybe you're not. But I I think Christians often see it as a real challenge. And, And as a result, we can become hostile. So the first objection mirrors that general perception that science disproves parts of the Bible. You see... If the Bible is questioned by science, and if I know that it's the infallible word of God, I I can't put those two sets of ideas together. I think this is particularly difficult when people are new to faith, or when they're just beginning to think deeply and chew ideas over. And, And the truths of the Bible and Jesus are really precious but our understanding still feels fragile, easily threatened. Many believers essentially decide that they have to discard science if it challenges their grasp on the Bible. And then that leads to a sense that putting forward scientific explanations is tantamount to opposing Christianity. We all know the immediate mockery in the media of anyone in political life who holds to a, a young earth seven day creation seen a little bit of that in the news in the last couple of weeks. It, it draws mockery from outside the church, and, and that's okay. Believers will be mocked for all sorts of things. But beyond that, beyond the ridicule, I think there are spiritual hazards to a rigid rejection of scientific ideas. So, if as Christians we start to worry that science disproves our Bible, If I start to think that science and scientists are somehow undermining God's message and authority, then clearly I reject them and their explanations. And that sometimes means that I'm going to end up putting too much significance on an unnecessary set of ideas. And it'll become a visible battleground. And it can become almost more important than my actual relationship with Jesus. We get away with it until the evidence mounts up. And then we, or or maybe children that have been raised in the tradition, at some point end up questioning our scientific interpretation of the world. And then if that crumbles, it's like dominoes. The rest of faith can be shaken severely. They've got too much invested in the wrong question. 
You can imagine the, the main areas. Is the universe old? Was it produced by a big bang? Did God make it recently? Did humans evolve in a, a natural, complex, but meaningless process? Or, or, or did God make them as a special reflection of him? Did God make the dinosaurs? Or did he make them as bones? Maybe later we'll end up talking about some of those. But, but for now I'll just say be careful about cut and dry simple answers. Be wary of dogma. Those are not easy questions. And I think we're kidding ourselves when we pretend that they are. If they were easy to give full satisfactory answers to, they wouldn't have kept dogging people for hundreds of years. So if, if those questions bother you, take them seriously. But don't just settle for superficial answers that might crumble in you at a later point, leaving you shaken. Tragically, at that stage, when people find a rigid, dogmatic point of view breaking, well, that's when many people turn and walk away from Jesus. Sometimes it's just for a while, sometimes it's forever. If I'm too easily satisfied, my faith may not need to develop deep roots. A second objection from Christians springs out of scientific ethics. And there's this idea in contemporary culture that scientists want to keep pushing and pushing the boundaries until they end up doing bad things. That as, as scientists meddle more and more with nature, they start to do more and more wicked, perverse experiments, and it can end badly. And, and you've seen the films or read the books where that's a key theme. The classic real-life examples are perhaps animal testing or embryonic stem cell research. Where, where things get to ethical grey areas very fast. And, and the idea is that if scientists are allowed their way, then countless animals could suffer. Countless defenseless, defenseless human embryos could be destroyed. Or, or science gives us weapons. Or, or science gives us industries that damage the planet. And, and so perhaps in some way we would be better stewards of creation if we were more wary of science and lived a simpler life without it. And of course, that's not really a fair criticism of science or scientists. It's a caricature. Scientists do have morals and ethical sense on, on the whole. Uh, yes, scientific progress gives opportunities for wickedness, but so does any aspect of human life. We don't stop farming because we're worried about consequences of sin in farmers. It's really an issue about the way that we as believers stand up for the rights of the oppressed and show love in our society and, and how we advocate sensible controls and checks in ethically difficult areas. It, it, it's a question about public governance. But I think the perception of the mad scientist, it, it sometimes feeds into Christian unease with scientific ideas. And a third challenge from Christians towards science comes from the idea of God of the gaps. Um, th this is one that turns up when, when Christians are feeling on the back foot. I would say that ideas like intelligent design tend to feed into this. Believers sometimes set themselves up for a fall by finding areas that science doesn't explain and then using them as proof that God must exist. So we look for evolutionary gaps. How could the eye have developed? It's the most famous one, I think. How could a complex molecule like DNA have appeared from scratch? 
Or, or cosmologically, we might say that there's need for a prime mover. That is, some first event had to happen to trigger something like the Big Bang. Let's use those things as evidence for the idea of God. Maybe we can find him there. And, and the problem is that as scientific understanding progresses, it will seem that God shrinks. He becomes more and more irrelevant and less and less likely to exist. And that leaves believers who've pinned their faith on those explanations feeling vulnerable and under attack. And modern atheist writers like Dawkins have rightly, I think, derided that kind of thinking. But as with many of these ideas, it's worth saying that they're not the first to do so. It's not new to them. Um, the, the God of the gaps phrase actually originates with Christian thinkers rejecting this approach in the 19th and 20th centuries. So, so Bonhoeffer writes about, write, writes about this. He, he says, how wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If in fact the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed further and further back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. And the idea there is that either God is Lord of everything and we'll see him as actively present everywhere or he just doesn't exist. If we pin our hopes on unexplained, then, then science is a threat to us. It will cut away at belief. As a believer, I have to do better than that. I have to be able to reconcile God with what we discover in science, even see him there. So how do we put these together usefully? Um, I, I think from some of those objections, uh, and maybe more, people get this idea of conflict between science and Christianity. Well, it's a truism, but I think the start is just to say that they do different things. Um, science is a, a way of studying the universe systematically. A scientist comes up with ideas of how things might work, then tests them with experiments to see if they can disprove them. And if an idea survives enough tests, we begin to think it might be correct. That, that's why it's enlightened ignorance. If an idea can't be tested, scientists have to say that we can't truly comment one way or the, the other on it. So, for Laplace, that was actually his explanation of why he didn't use the hypothesis of a creator. He said he could not see a way in which it would let him make a testable prediction. And Christianity, on the other hand, is it's a very different beast. It's, it's living in relationship with God through Jesus, getting to know him by his spirit. So, Christianity is, is just not going to stand up to science. They're talking about different things. Now, Genesis chapter 1, it, it is God creating the world, but it doesn't ex explain or even pretend to explain how he did it. Or how God made man in chapter 2. You know, to use the cliche, it's, it's not a textbook. The focus is to tell us that when God made the world, he made it good. And between now and then, things have gone terribly wrong. The Bible talks matter-of-factly about miracles, but again, it never says how they work, that they are miracles. It just shows us what we need to know about God through them. His power, his compassion, his willingness to show himself to his people. 
The, the two fit together because they do different things. Science is the how, the Bible is the why, for what purpose, the who am I? In fact, I, I would say my experience has always been that science equips us for faith. Um, as far as I know, there are more Christians in the science and maths departments at my school than in any other. Similarly, when I was at university, it was the physics department Christian group that was always among the largest and most active. Perhaps that's because academic science trains us to expect objective truth. We're happy with the concept of a real God. Whereas in humanities, we train students towards a much more relativist interpretation of the universe. We're going to look at three Bible passages briefly, just to help us out with a a Christian attitude to science. So I've got three willing volunteers back there. Um, And the first one is Psalm 19, which is page 552. They are saying in full speech, my darkness is a living image. They have their speech, they do their words, their sound is hushed. And their voice goes out into all the earth, the words of the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched his head to the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of the tomb, like a champion rejoicing to one of his cause. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit in the night. Nothing is required for it. The law of the Lord is perfect, professional soul. The statutes of the Lord are worthy and trustworthy, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The command of the Lord are radiant, giving light in to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. They increase the Lord of earth, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, and much, and much purer. They are sweeter than honey. But then the servant is void, and keeping them there is great reward. For him who discern their own hands, forgive my hidden fault. Keep your servant also from willful sins, when they are not full of me. Then I will be innocent of great compassion. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you very much. I love Psalm 19. There are so many songs that pick up on these themes, um, including a great one by the Be Good Tenors. But, but the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard for them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. And, and that there is the core of a good Christian attitude to science. Scientific understanding is about appreciating nature. It it tells us wonderful things about God's universe. It it points us to the kind of creator God he must be. And incidentally, it then equips us with technology. It enables us to do that Genesis 2 work of manipulating and ruling creation as stewards. Science is is looking at the wonders of creation. It it, it tells us who and what we worship. And it inspires us, like this in Psalm 19, to praise him. That's why I believe that scientific understanding is not an optional part of human activity. It's a really valuable portion of Christian experience. We learn that our God is wise, constant and dependable, and that he sustains the universe. He's powerful. 
Think of that throwaway line in Genesis 1. He also made the stars. We look at the variety of nature. We see that any God would have to be fearlessly created, infinitely original, and then to sustain every bit of that creation, down to the smallest particle, all the time. That is a remarkable God. Our tagline as a church is delighting in God and displaying his glory. And detailed, inquiring, scientific interest in nature equips us for that. It shows us the intricacy and wonder of creation. It lets me be filled with awe at the extent of the heavens. And then in my response of faithful praise, it shows God's glory. Um, here's what one scientist turned pastor writes. He says, And so I'm encouraged by the ever-increasing phalanx of scientists who love their work and love their God even more. Not because of apologetics. Hey, look, really clever people believe in God. Christianity must be plausible. But because of those scientists' reverence for their subject, their childlike excitement at exploration, their humility in the face of the mysteries of the universe. That's what science does. But do notice the rest of Psalm 19. I think there were three levels of David seeing the glory of his God here. He confesses that what he sees in creation is splendid, but notice verse 7 and on, he needs more. He needs the revealed law of this God. That's actually more important, more precious than the finery of creation. And then notice that even that isn't enough. And in verse 12 and 13, even with the wonders of God shown in creation and the treasure of his perfect teaching, David is still needing to pray, Lord, act in my heart. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep me clean. Appreciating creation is wonderful, but it's not enough. He needs a relational God who will actively protect and guide him. So that's picked up in our next chunk, which is Romans 1, 18 to 32. On page 1128. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, for their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, changed the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over and their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for women one another. Men committed shameful acts of other and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain their knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they do what ought not to be done. Thanks very much, Isabella. Actually, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to stop us.
that this grim reading. But, but see in verse 20, the Psalm 19 idea is picked up that the wonders of God are displayed clearly in creation. But the Christian contention is that the, the scientific exploration of our world is rewarding and wonderful but insufficient. It, it will show us order and pattern and, and from that we can conclude that there just happens to be an ordered and patterned universe that runs on its own and is self-sufficient. Or we can conclude that it was created by an intelligent, sovereign, creative deity. Both are self-consistent explanations. And aside from waiting for the second coming, it's impossible to design an experiment to test them against each other. Science is not going to land me in the knowledge of God. Particularly because this Bible claim in Romans 1 that one of the consequences of the fall, one of the results of our, our sinful hearts is that we lose the ability to encounter God for ourselves. So Adam and Eve are locked out of the garden in Genesis 3. Or here in Romans 1, 21 and 22, when we reject the Lord, our thinking becomes futile. We're unable to return to him. And the Bible describes this both in a mechanical sense, as a natural consequence of sin, and as part of God's act of judgment. See that in 24 and 26 and 28. When people turn from God, he gives them over to their blindness. An appreciation of the natural world is wonderful, but it will not reveal the ultimate truth of the Lord to us. For that I need the gospel. I need him to change my heart. We need his spirit at work in us if we're going to know him truthfully. And that, of course, is where Paul goes for the rest of Romans. One more passage to point you at. Um, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And if someone finds a page number, do yell it out. There we are. 1182. The sun is the image of the favourite passages. The Bible's claim is never that Jesus is some abstract idea or a moral fable for me to learn from. The Bible's claim is that he is the full embodiment of the living God, the complete revelation of his glory. The Bible's claim is not that Jesus is some dodgy way to make sense of a universe which is too big and scary for non-scientific minds to conquer. Now its claim is that if we come to Jesus, we are meeting and getting to know the creator of the universe himself. The one who who keeps it all running in verses 16 and 17. What does that say to science? I think it says that Jesus loves science. He designed it 
Science is God's providence, not man's. God loves it when his people look to him and the things that he's done and made and worship him. Can I be a Christian and a scientist? Emphatically, yes. And as I said before, I think it's important. Not that everyone needs a physics degree, obviously. That would be nice. The body of the church is diverse. But we need people within our fellowship who can geek out and point us to the wonders of creation and get excited about black holes or, or whatever. In just the same way that we need people who get excited about the arts and literature and music or, or people who point to compassionate human service and in those things bear out the truths of the Lord for us. Uh, Appreciating the science of God's universe helps me to appreciate and worship him. Do, do I have all the answers? No. In some cases I'm satisfied. Does it bother me? Yes. I have big doubts about some areas. I, I don't have easy scientific answers that let me ignore how terrible the world seems. But I do trust that Jesus is my creator and saviour. And ultimately, my evidence comes from the cross and resurrection, which is mentioned in verse 20 there. That is where I need to fix my eyes if I want to know which worldview to land in. I think we've got time for me to talk briefly about two more things. So one is just to flag up a few particularly problematic areas, um, which are worth pondering on. I, I won't claim to give exhaustive answers. There may be people who know more about these than me. Um, maybe it will stimulate some discussion later. Um, the second thing is then to talk about how do we interact with our friends about this. So, far too swiftly, five difficult bits of science, uh, five easy pieces. Um, obviously, we have to mention creation and evolution. I know that there will be a broad spectrum of stances in our church. Um, I want to say very briefly, and this is very important, it is not absurd to believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis. Nor, on the other hand, is it dangerous to accept an older universe. And as Christians, we need to be careful not to mock and condemn our brothers and sisters. We must not divide the body of Christ on insignificant grounds. I am confident that the Lord is powerful enough to have created the vastness of the universe as is a few thousand years ago. No doubt about that. He's God. And although I'm not convinced by them, there, there are reasonable arguments that the logic of the Gospel requires there to have been a literal Adam. It, it's not absurd. Personally, I'm, I'm happy enough with the concepts of the Big Bang and an old universe. And a process of creation through evolution. The, the data we see in our measurements fits the scientific explanation incredibly well. But beyond that, actually, I, I would tend to argue that it fits and is consistent with what I see of the, the elegance and the subtlety and the wonder of the Lord's creator sovereignty. I, I'm confident that it's within his powers to have achieved his purposes over those timelines as well. If pushed on whether humans evolved or were specially created, again, I don't know. Was there a literal Adam and Eve? Maybe. I'm not persuaded that it's clear in Scripture. 
But more importantly, I'm, I'm not persuaded that it affects my understanding of the Bible story. So, I don't want to plump down in discussion for one side or the other. Both are possible with what I know of God. And I, I don't have the data. I don't need to paint myself into a corner on issues that will, will turn people away from the Gospel, but don't touch how the Gospel works. And that's my top tip on these issues, to, to express humble, open, honest ignorance where appropriate. We don't have to have definite answers in Scripture for it. I, I, I take that to imply that it's not that important. Um, very, very brief. Second area, I just want to flag up. Neuroscience. Questions get asked about that a bit at the moment because it's big and it's scary. And, and the more we study the workings of our brains, the more many people become convinced that we are, are just physical machines. That our consciousness is an emergent property of a complex system. I, I'm told there is some evidence emerging that structures within the human brain predispose us to religious belief. And so the conclusion drawn from that is, aha, superstitious behaviour must confer some small evolutionary benefit, and therefore it will develop in animals that live in large groups. And naturally, stories like that can rather shake our faith. If science can explain my belief, maybe there's nothing more to it. When you encounter something like that, just be careful. Um, first, important, ask yourself the, the good science question. Has it actually been well tested, or is this a tabloid exaggeration? But then ask yourself, does it truly contradict the existence of God? The, the Bible's claim has always been of a God who longs for his people to live in relationship with him. Would it be surprising if he equips them for the purpose? Um, third area, this is the one that gets me, that I find most challenging. Um, the universe is almost absurdly huge. There are around 200 billion stars in our galaxy, of which our sun is below average size, and there's around 200 billion galaxies just in the observable universe. Well, how about this? You might think you're pretty special, but in your body... There are roughly 20 times as many independent bacterial cells as there are human cells. You're not even really you. What, what does that kind of stuff do to our understanding of self? How can I claim to have a special place in the universe in the face of that? If, if that becomes a problem for you too, and I'm sorry if I've just planted a bad seed, but if that becomes a problem for you, then, then Psalm 8 is wonderful. It's a great place to go. It asks, Lord, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? And then, of course, that's picked up in the New Testament as we see Jesus, the son of man, exalted to the highest place. And the thing that I would remind you of is that, again, the Christian claim is not that we are special. We are as the dust or the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow beside the Lord who endures forever. As we saw in Colossians, the Bible's claim is that it's Jesus who is special. 
All the rest of this is created through him and for him. And our only claim to significance comes in interacting with that singular Lord. Fourth thing, stem cell research. Um, This was big in the news a few years ago. It feels like it's dropped off a bit. Um, This is one of those areas where there are very big ethical questions that we need to be engaging with. A 20-second overview, stem cells are very versatile cells in the human body. They could be useful in a variety of medicinal work. Um, Adults have lots of stem cells in their bodies, and they're quite good, and we do useful research using these. It's interesting. But arguably the most promising research will, will come from using stem cells harvested from human embryos, which have been fertilized for the purpose or are unwanted byproducts of fertility treatment. And they are destroyed in the process. Now, it's far too big and emotive an issue for us to explore fully. But as with questions around abortion, or of the good of a woman's choice versus the good and the rights of an unborn child, it is something that we as Christians should be working out our positions on. We should be thinking about the way that our God has a heart for his people. And what that looks like with the most vulnerable in society. And that should probably inform our interaction with public life. Last one, super briefly, slightly silly. Um, The near future. Um, Progress is coming in genetic engineering, in screening of embryos for disease, in gene therapy. Uh, Even the possibility, though I'm very sceptical of it, of artificial intelligence. There are things on the horizon, near or far, that will impact how we perceive humanity, how we see rights and personhood, and believers need to be thinking about it. The story from the media in the last year, is it okay for us to be a society that screens for Down syndrome and aborts those embryos early? Is it alright for us to introduce new genetic material into human beings? Or are, are there things we shouldn't meddle with? I don't know. If we ultimately do develop artificial intelligences or some other fanciful piece of science fiction, how do we interact with that? What legal protection should they receive as strangers in our society, strangers and aliens in the world? There's stuff that we need to be ready for. Some things are distant and unrealistic. Others are here on the doorstep. And we need Christians in the global church who actively think through these issues. How will the Lord want his people to interact with new technology? What will it look like to live out the the James chapter 1 religion that remains pure, that cares for orphans and widows, that makes sure the most vulnerable aren't left in distress? That's five areas that I think deserve some thought. Um, Last thing then, really briefly, um, I want to ask... How does thinking about science and Christianity fit into evangelism, family and friends and colleagues? How how do you respond when you ask that that question? How how can Christianity be true if? Um, And this is brief because I've not got much to say. First thought, admit that you don't know. It's okay to confess ignorance. We can't be arrogant and pretend to know all the answers. Some things will be hidden from us until we get to heaven and we get to ask God personally. I'm looking forward to that. String theory. That's a great joke, right? I hope so. Um, 
Something we'll never know. God's probably got more mysteries up his sleeve than I can imagine. So happily admit that there are scientific questions we don't understand and can't answer yet. That is all right. I don't need to settle all of that before I can engage with God. But second, don't accept that science has proved Christianity wrong. How can you prove there is no God? How do you even start to design that experiment? How can you prove that miracles are impossible? I I can freely admit that I don't understand how they work, which makes it all the more remarkable if they happen. I would say most of the apparent conflicts between science and Christianity are illusions or misunderstandings or, or, or sometimes they're just deliberate distractions because people would rather be able to dismiss the gospel than have to engage with it and maybe find something that they know will challenge them. So deal with it gently. And thirdly, this is the most important thing, we redirect people towards the cross. That's the real issue. We don't want to be dismissive of someone's struggles or concerns. That They may genuinely have deep doubt and confusion about a problem. But in the end, no amount of science or philosophy or ethical debate is going to show people the truth they need. The only place to find that is in Jesus. And it's only in coming to know him as a person and coming to accept the wonder of what he's done for us that anything in me can be changed. So if we care for our friends, then that's where we want to take them. Always point them back to the person of Christ. That's where they'll find their real answers. Last point, and it's almost too obvious to include, but when you meet questions and challenges, even opposition, based on the idea that science and Christianity are incompatible, even if it flares up into an argument, don't leave it there. Respond as we should to all of our friends and family who don't yet know the Lord. Love them and pray for them consistently over time and follow up the conversation later and bear witness and imitate the patience that we've been shown. (coughs) I'm going to sit down and shut up now, but um, first I'll read Psalm 19 again and then let's respond by just singing, I think, just one song. reminding ourselves about this Lord who created the heavens and the earth. And then hopefully we'll have a discussion and questions. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. 
but who can discern their, discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer.